I wanted to do something a little bit differently tonight, and that is, I want to go through the Bible and do this Bible study, but I'd like to, from time to time, share testimony uh, as well as do the Bible study. In my younger years, uh, and I call them at this time foolish years, not just because I was young, but because of what I was involved in. Anybody's a fool apart from Christ. I don't care how educated they are, how much they have it together. A person apart from Christ is a fool. And uh, in my foolish days, I sought for power. Not power from God, not power of the Holy Spirit, but anything that would provide meaning for me. And Gino Geraci and I grew up kind of together uh, in this search. And there was a time when we decided to take a trip with our high school uh, down to Mexico. And we got involved in some things that led us on a journey that gave us some experiences with the devil that caused us to realize that there is power, indeed much power, on the dark side, to use a Star Wars term. But if there was that much power on the dark side, goodness, how much there must be on the right side. And fortunately, in our search, we found that there was somebody searching for us. And uh, God found us. But I'd like Gina to come out now and, where you at, bud? Right there. And uh, share with us a little, uh, with you a little bit of what happened during that experience uh, in the occult. And then we'll get into the word. When we were in high school, we, you know, he talks about foolishness. Well, I was his foolish friend. And as his foolish friend, I, was introduced to some things uh, that dealt with the occult, with altered states of consciousness. And I discovered that we could contact spirits by a practice that was known as automatic writing. And uh, I showed Skip how it worked, and we would practice it uh, in California where we were growing up. But when we took this trip, something unique happened. We were in our hotel room and Skip, as always, carried his guitar everywhere that he went. And he flipped the guitar over and we put down a piece of paper and we did this thing. And all of a sudden, Skip's hand started moving, jerking violently back and forth. And we got this message from this spirit being. And basically, the spirit being said that we were going to go back on this train and the train was going to derail and we were both going to be killed. And so we refused to take the train back. And we went to the teacher and we said, a spirit has told us that if we take the train back, we're going to die. And we feel it that it's our responsibility to tell you that if you take the train back, you're going to die too. Yeah, he should have flunked us. I think we did get a D for carrying those switchblades back. But it wasn't academic, it was citizenship. No, I'm just teasing the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In our youth and in our foolishness, we were deceived by a spirit, by a false spirit. And I guess the thing that I'd like to share with you is that the fear and the torment is very real when you're involved in demonic things that the fear grips your heart and it terrorizes you. And it's very, very important that you not allow ignorance coupled with pride 
to plant deception in your heart. And uh, I guess that's all. The gist of it in that hotel room is that we actually spoke to spirits and asked them to inhabit us. That was the scary part. We didn't know what we were doing. We asked them to inhabit us, to take control of our bodies and to give us those messages of our past lives. And uh, as we got them, uh, time after time after time and practiced them, the only thing that it instilled within us was not a sense of power, but a sense of fear. That we're going to die. Watch out for your life. And, you know, the Bible says that Satan comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. We're going to discover tonight, looking at a few passages, that's always his intent. It's to destroy life, to destroy human life before it gets to know Jesus Christ and to destroy a Christian's spiritual vitality, to make him alienated from his God so that he loses the real sense and purpose of his life, that he becomes sort of a spiritual vegetable. And so the truth is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The devil hates you and he's got other plans for your life. And so we need to learn how to walk in victory. Well, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we already read how one notable woman named Lydia came to know the Lord. One convert so far. There may have been others, but one that we know of. A prominent woman, a businesswoman. She came to know Christ. Her life was changed as they met out there by the river. And in the rest of this chapter, we're, we come to two others that Luke tells us about. I'm sure there were more, but two that he writes about. One, a demon-possessed slave girl, and the other, a Philippian jailer. What what a group. A notable businesswoman, a demon-possessed girl, and a jailer. All in the same chapter. I think that perhaps Luke selected these three in Philippi to show us not only how different people are from each other, but how the gospel reaches every class of individual. It's appealing to everyone. And really, as we heard tonight, testimony from our friend Kohama from Japan. There's no Japanese, there's no American. But we're one in Christ. That's what the Bible says. There's neither Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. For it says, He Himself is our peace, who has broken down the wall of separation and has made us one. You know, in India today, if you go there, there is still, although it's outlawed, it's still in practically enforced, and that is the caste system, where you have different groups of people that are separated from each other by birth, by nobility, by money, by influence, by who they have been reincarnated to from their past life into this life. And there are real distinctions that people have. And in India, when a person becomes a Christian, and another person becomes a Christian, and people in a village become a Christian, those walls are broken down. And they notice, you know what, we're the same. Whether you're from the Brahmin caste or you're an untouchable, we're all one in Jesus Christ. That's one of the things I love about this chapter, is it shows us that no matter who you are, you can become one in Christ and one with other people. Every now and then, as I travel... I visit some churches that seem that everyone in them is the same. That's okay. But in one sense, it's kind of boring. It's all one class of people, one financial class, or one color group, all white. One thing I love about this church, it's a microcosm of rich, poor, white, dark, different backgrounds, different uh, personalities, just so different from one another. And I get a kick out, I've got a kick out of it Sunday morning, 
You see somebody in blue jeans, a t-shirt and long hair sitting next to a businessman in a three-piece suit on the floor. But that's great. Now let's look at this strange incident. We'll read through it, then we'll comment on it. Now it happened when we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hopes of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now in verse 16, we're introduced to this young girl. It says, it happened when we went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination. In some of your Bibles, in the margin, you notice the word, literally, it says python. That's what it literally means when it says the spirit of divination. A python spirit. Now you're wondering, what on earth does this mean? Was she into snakes and things? Or, or what was it? In Greece, in the city of Delphi, there was a huge temple. The ruins still are there today, but it was the temple of Apollos, one of the chief gods of the Greeks. According to Greek mythology, Apollos slain Pythias, who was a dragon. After slaying this dragon, it is said that Apollos was embodied in the form of a snake. That is, the spirit of Apollos entered Pythias, and so that the python snake was the representative or the representation of Apollos. They had priestesses in this temple. The priestesses of the temple went into a trance where they became oracles or spokeswomen of Apollos. And as she would go into a trance, the priestess would speak and people, thousands of people would come and consult asking for their future to be told because she was in touch with Python. And so it seems that either this was a priestess or someone involved in that temple at Delphi who was there in Philippi, a young slave girl who had the spirit of divination. If you have an NIV, it says a girl who could foretell the future, something like that. What that simply means is it became a synonym for someone who could prognosticate or tell the future to say they were possessed with a python spirit. Pythias. They were in touch with someone or something that would enable them to predict the future. So it referred to a fortune teller. The pagan peoples around the nation of Israel trafficked in fortune telling. And as you know, people love, for some unknown reason, 
They want to know the future. Actually, I'm glad I don't know the future. There's a lot of things that have happened to me that if I would have known of in advance, probably would have just totally destroyed me, rendered me helpless. But people have always had a fascination with the future. And oftentimes, rather than consulting God, the children of Israel would turn from God and seek mediums and fortune tellers. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, it's forbidden for Israel to do this. It says, when you enter into the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations who are there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination, fortune telling, or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. God repeated himself several times. And I didn't give you all of the sources, but in Leviticus, God says, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In the next chapter of Leviticus, I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists to prostitute himself by following them. I will cut him off from his people. And then God gets a little stiffer. He kind of turns the juice up. In the next chapter, when he says, a man or woman who is a medium or a spiritist among you must be put to death. You are to stone them, and their blood will be on their own heads. The weird thing about Israel is that they thought that they could do two things, that they could worship God and claim to be God's people. Go to the temple, go through the sacrifices, say, praise the Lord, and yet be involved in pagan, idolatrous ways of divination to predict their own future. Classic example, Saul. Although he banned mediums from the land of Israel, there came a time before a decisive battle on Mount Gilboa when the Philistines were against them that he sought the Lord, but it says God didn't answer him. And because God didn't answer him, because he didn't get what he wanted when he wanted it, it said that Saul asked is there a medium in the land of Israel? Is there a woman I can consult or a man who can tell me the future? And somebody says, there is a witch over at Endor. And so Saul went from Gilboa to Endor to find out what's going to happen in the battle. And he got quite a shock when Samuel appeared. That's a whole other story and another explanation for another time. As the life of Israel went on during the prophets, Isaiah came on the scene, Jeremiah came on the scene, and basically the nation had become corrupted. Now, mind you, they were still going to church. They were going to the temple. And they were looking at the temple saying, boy, it's great to be a Jew. It's great to go to the temple. Hallelujah. Praise God. Claiming to be God's people while at the same time inquiring of mediums and spiritists and fortune tellers. And so God and Isaiah said, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult classic here? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Isn't that a great question? What, what are you doing asking a dead person about how to live? Didn't do him much good. And then God says, to the law. To the law and the testimony. Don't listen to Why do you ask dead people about how to live? You got the law and the testimony. Stick to it. 
This morning in England, two-thirds of the British population read their daily horoscope. Two-thirds. Over in France, some 53% of the country read their daily horoscope. In Germany, 63% of the whole country read their daily horoscope to find out what's the future going to be like. Many of them, perhaps, like some of you, thought, oh, well, you know, it's just, I don't really live by it, but it's interesting. Every month in our country, 30,000 Americans buy personalized horoscopes. Ever seen those? IBM computer printout. And yet they buy them and they believe them. They're personalized horoscope. And it's big business. It's estimated that there's 10,000 full-time astrologers in this country alone. So it's big enough business to employ 10,000 human beings to give people predictions of the future. 10,000 people with spirits of divination, if you will. I think it's a bunch of hogwash, but there's a lot of people who fully buy into it. 10,000 full-time astrologers, 175,000 part-time astrologers. And the business is growing as the years go on. Peter Sellers, the late actor, was convinced that the stars, the alignment of the planets, held some kind of meaning for humans on Earth. And before he would do movies, he would always consult astrologers. The Beatles, when they established Apple Records, consulted astrologers and mediums to find out the timing and what they should do and so forth, which is interesting. The whole business venture flopped on them. There are many ways in our culture that people seek to find out the future. Recently in Cosmopolitan magazine, a woman's magazine, there was given to the enlightened readers ways, no joke, teaching them how to read tea leaves and coffee grounds to determine their future. You didn't know that when you drink coffee you had something else there. You just usually throw it away. You can find out your future. The same article taught them how to read tarot cards, which are cards that you spread out. Gino used to read them, I remember, on our high school campus. With pretty good accuracy. That was the scary thing. Cards have pictures on them. They speak about episodes in a person's life. And when you lay them out, they form a pattern with a conclusion that gives you some kind of cosmic roadmap to your life. People are still involved in the ancient practice of I Ching, which is where you throw rods down on the ground and they form a pattern, sort of like reading tea leaves or coffee grounds, and you can predict the future. In 1960, the Rand Corporation decided that they would form a little group to predict business trends. Now, this was non-occultic. It was just a bunch of good businessmen with good business sense. They got together and they decided, hey, let's have a little think tank. We can predict future economic trends. The interesting thing is what they called their group, the Delphi group. Delphi was the city I just mentioned in Greece where the temple of Pythias and Apollo stood. It continued till about 1979 when a French economist joined the group and he renamed the group instead of Delphi, Terra. Terra cards, T-A-R-O-T. And he introduced consulting mediums, spiritists, witches to find out the future for the corporation and the business world. It's not new. If you go back in history, uh, all the way from the children of Israel, ancient Semitic peoples, the time of Babylon and so forth, but years ago, one of the most famous ones is Nostradamus. And probably you've heard them if you have been with any New Agers or people who had 
traffic and this stuff, they bring up Nostradamus because this person was a physician and an astrologer who predicted the future, they think, with great accuracy. And modern followers of Nostradamus swear that he predicted the French Revolution, the coming of Napoleon, two world wars, uh, the Great Plague, the Bubonic Plague, um, the Great Fire of London, and so forth. But perhaps the most notable example of fortune-telling or predicting the future prognostication is with a woman by the name of Jeannie Dixon. And uh, my parents even used to be uh, enthralled with her because of her predictions. She claimed to be religious. She had a religious affiliation. She went to church, I think, every week. Some of her predictions were very accurate. She predicted the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. She predicted the assassination of Robert Kennedy in the very place that it happened. And yet she made many mistakes. She predicted that World War III would begin, I think, in 1958. Didn't happen. She predicted the end of the Vietnam War in 1966. And for every one prediction she made right, she made about five predictions that were wrong. But it's interesting, the one that gets published and have notoriety are the ones that she did right. Okay, pretty good track record. And many people would have a hard time trying to answer the question, how could she do it? But compare that for a moment with a better example of truth, and that is the prophets of Israel. Why, when you have the prophets of Israel with an impeccable track record, would you turn to astrology or mediums or Jeannie Dixon? In fact, if Jeannie Dixon were in the Old Testament, she'd have been dead. She'd have been stoned by now. And so would Nostradamus. Because the track record for a prophet of Israel was not 88% like uh, Edgar Cayce or Jeannie Dixon, but 100%. In fact, God said, if what they say doesn't come to pass, just take them outside the camp and throw rocks at them until they're dead. Because anybody who speaks in my name must be right on. Because God doesn't make mistakes. And if you consider, and one of the most fascinating studies to ever undertake on your own is a study of fulfilled biblical prophecy. It will blow your mind. You will come up with what Peter said when he said we have a more sure word of prophecy that is even more certain than watching Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's what he said. You know that? He said we were with Jesus on the mountain when he was transfigured. We saw Moses and Elijah. We touched Jesus. We saw all those miracles. But we have something better. A more sure word of prophecy that shines like a light in the dark places. That's why I believe Christians need to get back to the word of God. And when you study the prophets, every time I do a study on biblical prophecy, I come out the other end thinking, what do I have to worry about? I take this little problem. I say, oh, God, this is so huge. This is so big. Do you think you could help at all? But when I study God's Word and His power, I think, oh, this is nothing for you. I consider prophecies like Isaiah and Jeremiah where they predicted Cyrus. A couple hundred years before he was ever born, God said a king would come named Cyrus, and this is what he would do, and it came to pass perfectly, the overtaking of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. Or one of my favorite studies of prophecy is the 330 direct references and inferences of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I've told you before how that one person decided to come up with mathematical probability. What were the odds of one man in history fulfilling the prophecies Jesus fulfilled? And he said, forget 330, let's just take eight. 
And he said that according to mathematical probability, this was done at Westmont College, incidentally, in uh, California when it wasn't liberal. And uh, he said the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies, the eight major prophecies like where he would be born, his lineage, things that he could not alter or change himself, the odds of anybody doing that would be one in ten to the 17th power. And I've told you this I'll, for those who aren't familiar with it, you could take that number, 10 to the 17th power, and it's this big. You could take the state of Texas, and if you were to take silver dollars and stack them up on top of each other, you would fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep with that number. The odds of one man fulfilling history, in history, the claims of Jesus, or the prophecies, the eight prophecies, is the same odds of having somebody blindfolded walk through Texas knee-deep in silver dollars, and pick out the one you in advance chose. But he goes on, and he gets incredible. He uses uh, uh, atoms and uh, electrons, and he goes deeper just to show you how incredible it is that one man could fulfill these prophecies. And so we have this girl who no doubt blew the people's minds because she made predictions. And you know, you can make predictions that are generalized. You can make predictions that may partly come to pass. And a lot of people were taken up by it, so much so that in our text it says there were a group of people who owned her. She was a slave girl. And she brought them a considerable sum of money. Now, before we finish out our text and go through it, how much do you really want to know about your future? How much? You know how much I want to know? As much as God deems fit that I know. Really. And that's not some spiritual cliche. Really, you know, it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us, to our children, that we might keep the law of God. God reveals enough so I will obey Him. And I am glad that God has kept much of my future hidden from me until it happens. Because Jesus said that we're to trust Him one day at a time and sufficient is the day for its own evil. And when I face whatever it is I'm facing in the next day that I didn't know about the day before, well, God will give me the strength then. But if I think, oh, I made a, God made a prediction that something's going to happen in two weeks, oh, and I've got to wait two whole weeks. And then it's going to get worse. Oh, it would be horrible. Well, notice what it says here. It says she was possessed. And this is where I wanted to slow down a little bit. It happened when we went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These are men of the servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. She did it for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, he just got ticked off at hearing this every day, I turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So it was a real spirit inside of a real girl. She was possessed. You find in the New Testament, oftentimes, cases of real demon possession. Not a disease, but the merging of the identity of a human being so closely with the demon spirit that it's often indistinguishable. They become almost one where the person's possessed, not oppressed, demonized, they're controlled. The motor processes are controlled. It's not that they've had a bad day and they say something weird and somebody would say, I think they have a demon. No. 
It's not like a person smokes a cigarette and like some people say today, I think the person has the spirit of nicotine. And all these real weird teachings going around today that people have the spirit of this and spirit of that and it's basically garbage. True demon possession is in the New Testament. They were controlled. The motor functions of their brain were controlled, taken over by a foreign spirit. And oftentimes they had no control at all. They exhibited supernatural strength. They often tried to kill themselves or cut themselves. They cried out in a loud voice. They identified that Jesus Christ was who He said He was. Jesus had to muzzle them and keep them quiet. And there's definite cases of them. Especially in the Gospels. Why? Well, you'd expect it. That from the beginning of time when God said, Satan, someone's going to come along someday who's going to crush your head, crush your power. Who's going to waste your kingdom. Who's going to spell your defeat. Satan had been waiting ever since. And when Jesus came on the scene and the prophecies were being fulfilled, it shouldn't surprise us. There would surface a great deal of demonic activity. Not only probably in the spirit world and uh, realms of, uh, that we don't see, but especially on the earth. And they're very manifest in the New Testament. Demons promote Satan's cause. Satan is limited. There's only one devil. Okay? There's not Satan here and Satan there and the devil. The devil is probably uh, not even around here. But he's got who knows how many demons. Because he himself is limited. He has a whole army of people. Not people. Demonic spirits. Perhaps assigned to places. Perhaps assigned to you. And oftentimes... Demons get blamed on a number of things, and it's true. I think the devil has great power through his demons, but a lot of the times, I think it's just us. Not only are there demons, there's the human nature. And oftentimes we're out trying to fight the devil, and it's inside. It's the human nature that's really causing the problem. It's the devil. Well, no, it's just you. You have a fleshly nature, and you're being disobedient to God, and God will give you the victory, and you're just blaming it on someone else because you don't want to take responsibility for it. And that I find oftentimes within Christian circles. They have the ability to oppress people greatly. In the physical realm, I believe, in the spiritual realm, in the emotional realm. I see it all the time. They have on certain cases and occasions the ability to possess a human being. The movie came out, Exorcist. I saw it in its uncut version in Hollywood. I was young and impressionable at the time. I was a baby Christian. The movie was taken from supposedly a real story, not about a young girl, but about a young boy in the San Francisco area, documented these things really happened. Then a film came out. When the film came out, discussion surfaced all over the country in the possibility of demon possession. Is it possible to be demon possessed? Well, if you look in the scripture, it's clear that it is. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 8. Several places where there were demons that surfaced and would take people, throw them on the ground. The guy would cut himself with rocks, hide in the tombs over at Gadara on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Does it happen today? Definitely. I believe that a person can be, I know a person can be demon-possessed, controlled by a foreign spirit. But be careful. Because we often like to blame lots of things on the devil. And I hear a lot of people say, you know, I'm convinced that man has a demon. Well, maybe. 
But you know, it's kind of, anybody can say that. Remember, Saddam Hussein was and probably still is convinced that our president is the devil in the White House, demon-possessed. And oftentimes we just kind of use that as a blanket and we throw it over just about anything. But I think we have to admit that there is, but not everybody that is weird or has a disease or exhibits strange behavior is demon-possessed. I want to read two things. One from a book by the authors Danny Corum and Paul Meyer, who did a study on this, and one by Dr. Walter Martin, who's now in heaven. Uh, First of all, Danny and Paul write in their book, I can honestly say that I have never yet seen a single case of true demon possession. The main thing I have learned about demon possession is how little we really know about it and how little the Bible says about it. I've had hundreds of patients who came to see me because they thought they were demon-possessed. Scores of them heard demon voices, telling them of evil things to do. It was at first surprising to me that all of them had dopamine deficiencies in their brains, which were readily correctable with Thorazine or any other major tranquilizer. I discovered that all of the demons I was seeing were allergic to Thorazine. And that in nearly every case, a week or two on the Thorazine made the demons go away and brought the patient closer to his real conflicts. These demons were merely auditory hallucinations. To have self-esteem, these patients were unconsciously amplifying their own unwanted thoughts so loud they seemed like real voices. They felt less guilty when they could convince themselves that these thoughts were coming from an external source, demons, rather than from within themselves. Don't get me wrong, he goes on, I am a strict biblicist who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe demons really do exist because the Bible says they do. I believe that there probably are some demon-possessed persons in various parts of the world. The next story is by Dr. Walter Martin from a book, paper uh, on exorcism. And Walter was a quite a Bible scholar and apologist. Now he's in heaven, but he wrote, I have a psychologist friend who was present with me at an exorcism in Newport Beach, California. These were probably very rich demons. Before we entered the room, he said, I want you to know that I do not believe in demonic possession. This girl is mentally disturbed. I said, that very well may be. We'll find out very soon. As we went into the room and closed the door, the girl's supernatural strength was soon revealed. Suddenly from her body, a totally foreign voice said quietly with a smirk on her face, she was unconscious, the psychologist testified to that, she said, we will outlast you. The psychologist looked at me and said, what was that? I said, that is what you don't believe in. We spent three and a half hours exercising what the psychologist didn't believe in. At the end of the exorcism, he was not only a devout believer in the personality of the devil, but in demonic possession and biblical exorcism as well. He knows that there are other dimensional beings capable of penetrating this dimension and of controlling human beings. It is real. It happens. Yet... At the same time, you want to guard against over-dramatizing things or oversimplifying things by saying they're demon-possessed. I had a person come up to me who believed that Christians can be demon-possessed, which I think, again, is nonsense. And he said, he was a uh, fellow, and I was with him in India. And I'll tell you more stories about that. But he came up to me, and he got right in my face 
at the airport in New Delhi. He was a short little guy, and he stands up to me and he just puts his head right in my face and he goes, I used to have the spirit of intimidation, but I don't anymore. I go, all right, all right, I believe you. It was cast out of me last night. And you know, demon of this, demon of that, demon behind every rock. It gets to be ridiculous. In 1 Timothy it says, The Spirit says expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines taught by demons. And I think one of the greatest doctrines taught by demons is that you as a believer in Christ and filled by the Holy Spirit can have a demon in your apartment with you. In the house, the apartment where Jesus Christ dwells. I think it's a lie. I think it's an intimidation factor. I think it's an, uh, an excuse that some Christians use instead of crucifying the flesh. They'll say, well, I just can't help it. A demon made me do it. And once I get this thing exercised and cast out, I'll have no problem. Why don't you just face up that you're carnal like everybody else and you've given over to this thing of the flesh and you need to do what the Bible says, the painful way. Crucify the old man. Put off the things of the flesh. Say, so, well, how do you know demons can't inhabit a Christian? And I've had even people say, well, well, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's get real here. They say, I believe that a demon can control a Christian's body, but not spirit. God will guard the spirit, but the body is open. Well, then why does Paul say so emphatically, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body, the Spirit of God, lives within you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. He bought you. And then it goes on to say, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Jesus said, Now is the prince of this world cast out, referring to his crucifixion. Colossians, Paul said, He's been stripped of his power at the cross. When I was in India with this team I was telling you about, there was a teacher who was basically a false prophet. He was from America where we grow them and then export them. And he was in India, and he was going to give this wonderful, enlightening message on how that Christians can be delivered from demons. And he stood up. Now, bear in mind, this is actually humorous. It was great. He stands up, and he has to have an interpreter. The interpreter knows what he's saying. He has no idea what the interpreter is saying because he doesn't speak Malayalam, the language of southern India. It was humorous. Now imagine a room filled with probably 1,200, 1,000 to 1,200 pastors, Christian workers from India, Hindu land, where demons are really real over there. They've seen them. They've experienced that kind of oppression. And imagining, imagine a person from America standing up, pointing his finger at a 1,000 pastors, and he pointed at them and he says, I have cast out demons out of major Christian figures in the United States of America. And then he says, as I look over this crowd, I see demons over all of you tonight. Demons hanging from you. I'm going to cast them out of you. What he didn't know is that the guy next to him had at least two or three ounces of theology more than he did. He was void of it. And as he was saying, there's demons over you, the person theologically corrected him, saying, there are angels over all of you tonight. Everybody's clapping. 
Okay? Now, funny, he's saying, there's demons over all of you, and it's, you know, that's what he thinks the interpreter is saying, and everybody's clapping like, why are you clapping? He had no idea what he was interpreting. And fortunately, the Indian theologian, the, the pastor, the interpreter, had much more biblical training to know that that's impossible. And they came up to the leadership team afterwards and said, why did you bring this person here? We experience demon, demonic activity constantly. And we know what real demon possession is. This is heretical. Christians can't be demon possessed. And it was interesting to watch this whole event take place over in India. I want you to turn for a moment over to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at a couple verses, and then we'll get back to our text and finish up. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays for spiritual wisdom in chapter 1. He says in verse 18 that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power, these demonic rankings that He mentions in this book and in Galatians, and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Okay, that's great. We get the gist. He says, you know, I'm praying for you guys, that you guys would wake up and realize the power of God in your life because Jesus has been raised over every spirit, demonic being, over everything that is to come, and it's all under his feet. And one day we'll be completely under His feet at the end of the age. That's where Christ is. He's up in heavenly places at the right hand of God. Turn over to chapter 2 and look at verse 6. And raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're identified with Him. Where He is, spiritually we are. And His benefits are then given to us. And then turn over to 1 John chapter 5. You just turn right and keep going. Right before almost Revelation, you come to 1 John. The last chapter, chapter 5, in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, or literally, whoever is born of God does not continually, habitually practice a lifestyle of sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one does not touch him. Oh, you can certainly be oppressed. In fact, Christians can yield ground voluntarily to Satan. Because the battle isn't over. He keeps hounding you to take back more of the ground, spiritual ground in your life. And through obsessive, compulsive behavioral patterns and habits, you can give more back to him. I find that when a person comes out of an occultic background, the battle is often raging much more longer, much deeper uh, than for normal people, for other people. Never once in the New Testament did the disciples ever cast a demon out of a believer. Challenged them, yes. Taught them, yes. Gave them tips on victory, certainly. 
talked about the flesh and overcoming the works of Satan, but never once was he taught to cast somebody out or a demon out of a Christian, or were they seeing doing that? Now, back to our text. And I lost my place, so I'll find it again. Acts chapter 16. There's a couple things I want to draw to your attention. And we might have to just finish this up next time. But notice when this strange event happened. It's a very key here. It happened as we went to prayer. That a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. You're in a spiritual conflict. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and wickedness in this age. As you pray, you enter into a battle, and Satan knows it. Aren't you amazed at the incredible amount of distractions that occur the moment you decide to pray? And I read this, and and in one sense I just thought, typical, typical. The moment you decide to pray, what happens? Well, the phone rings. Somebody's at the door. Thought comes in your head that you, you know, you've been trying to remember this thing for months and you think, I'll remember it. All of a sudden you're praying, oh, I've got to do that. And you'll get up and you'll do it. Satan often, or his demons will often, it seems, prompt you to other activities that he knows are fruitless, but anything to keep you from praying. Because he knows the crux of the battle is found in prayer. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. If you walked into an alley, and let's say somebody jumped you, and you're a pretty good wrestler, and you're kind of having a 50-50 fight. He rolls you a few punches, you roll him a little bit, and, you know, even Stephen, you think you'll get out of this one. Then he steps back and pulls out a knife. Ah. A new factor has been introduced into the battle. And all of your energy will not be in, how can I wrestle this guy down? But how can I get the knife out of his hand? Because the knife is the decisive factor in the battle. That's what prayer is like. All of a sudden, in your normal, daily Christian life, as you go through life and as Satan tumbles you a little bit and you kind of get out of it, the moment you pull out the knife of prayer, Satan then thinks, all right, that's the decisive factor in this battle. How can I disarm that Christian from using prayer. That's why it's so difficult for you and I to engage in prayer. It's spiritual warfare. It spells his defeat. And so as they went to prayer, uh, this girl came up. Look at the method. Verse 17, the girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. What she spoke was the truth. She preached the gospel. She preached the gospel clearer than many Christians preach the gospel. It was very definitive. And the Bible says that uh, she was following after him. It's a present participle in Greek. She constantly hounded, dog, were on their steps day and night and said, these people preach the truth. This is the way of salvation. Now, could that have been a temptation to these guys? Think for just a moment. They have labored in Philippi. They've seen one convert. They haven't managed to get any kind of a crowd to listen to their evangelistic message. And here one demonized girl preaches, it seems, close to the same message or the same message. And because of who she is and because of her respect gained in the community, she's got a crowd, no doubt. And they're thinking, well, you know, she's telling the truth. What does it hurt? And yet they refuse to receive the testimony, though it's, it was true. 
from a demon-possessed girl. Just like Jesus, when the people, when the demon said, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. The Mighty One. Jesus said, literally in Greek, be muzzled. He silenced them. He refused to accept the testimony of a demon. Why? Because of the alliance factor. Anytime you bring something evil or someone evil and you ally yourself with them, not only is there a message there, but there's a motive. And you yourself will become leavened. And so Jesus said he wouldn't receive it. That's an, just an important spiritual principle here. Be careful who you align yourself with. There is a movement today in the churches toward ecumenism. It goes like this. You know, the church has been splintered and fractioned for so many years. Can't we all just get together and love each other? Now, that's a good statement, and it's a good, pure motivation. But people get a an idealistic, non-realistic view of what it means to have unity. You know, let's just... Why do we have to have different churches? Can't we just all meet in the pit Sunday morning and worship Jesus together? That was the thinking in 1948 of a group called the World Council of Churches. And 400 million people have since subscribed to the World Council of Churches. Excuse me, not 400. 4 million members of churches worldwide have joined the World Council of Churches. Their motto is... One world, one church. One world, one church. Let's all get together and just love and agree. And it sounds good, but it's rotten at the core. Because what happens is it attracts conservative evangelicals who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, liberals who don't even care if Jesus existed or not, people like uh, these who write for the local newspapers from time to time. (laughs) And they all belong to the same group. And it sounds like, oh, and it need when, but what has happened in every meeting of the World Council of Churches since every year is they've lost their punch for evangelism. In fact, recently the World Council of Churches admonished Christian colleges and universities to allow as chair members of the university Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims. Let's be broad-minded. And so it hasn't strengthened the church, it's corrupted the church, this ecumenism, this false unity. Alliance is important. And they knew that. And they, Paul, it says here, was greatly annoyed. Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Not necessarily that very second. No doubt they prayed. They used their spiritual warfare. They had an episode of spiritual deliverance of a demonic spirit from this girl. But notice, it didn't help. Because when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, Uh, Who cares that she's delivered and she's sane again? Our pocketbooks are suffering. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews trouble our city. What a lie. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. I find that that is actually the complaint of many people around the world to us preaching the gospel. I've been in India before and I was flying back on an airplane and this woman said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a minister of the gospel. And I'm going over to India where I've been in India teaching some of the pastors. Why do you come over to India to change their culture and custom? Just he read me the riot act. When we sent tracks to Saudi Arabia... 
How insensitive. Don't you know that they're cussing? Yes. I know that because I've been over to those parts of the country, of the world myself. I felt the hostility. I've been surrounded by people who wanted to get rough with me and silence us in the crowd. And yes, the gospel is against many customs. It's against American culture. I hope you know that. The gospel is the antithesis of American culture. Now, certainly now. But the gospel doesn't come to attack the culture. It's a byproduct of the culture. And there's an elevation that happens in the culture that receives the gospel. You go to India, it's completely against the Hinduistic culture of the land. Very much so. Very much so that there's persecution. But go into a village that, that has been penetrated with the gospel. There's a higher standard of living. There's not a caste system. People love each other. They share the water supply with them. They build a water well at the church so the village can drink of it. Complete change in culture because of the gospel. And so they were right. Uh, there was a, a change in the customs. But that wasn't the motivation. It's just the byproduct. The multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Paul made reference to this in 2 Corinthians 11. And when we had laid, they had laid many stripes on them, threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now imagine being Paul and Silas. Imagine you wanted to go to a whole other part of the world, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let you, right? Remember it says the Holy Spirit forbade them from going into Asia? They tried, but God wouldn't let them. Closed all the doors. Paul gets a vision from Macedonia and says, come over to Macedonia and help us. He says, all right, this must be the Lord. Jesus is calling us to preach the gospel. So they went to Philippi. Great results. One woman got saved. Hmm. Oppression in the city, getting beat up, thrown in jail. Don't you think at that point they're on stocks going, did we hear right? Was that God speaking to us when He said, go over to Macedonia? I mean, we've had a successful ministry. Here we're beaten up and one person comes to know Christ. Small beginnings. The flow of life does not always determine the will of God nor demonstrate it. Some people try something that they feel God has led them into and it doesn't quite flow smoothly at first. So they conclude, oh, it's not God, I quit. There's no endurance. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. They go away. But not Paul and Silas. Boy, they hung in there. And next time we're going to see an incredible thing happen with the Philippian jailer. Before we do, look back at verse 22 and we'll close with this. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. A charge was against these disciples but it was the multitude that really sealed the decision. Perhaps the magistrates thought, well, you know, this is an accusation, but we can't prove anything. Just let's warn them and let them go. But the multitudes, so angry, caused there to be a swing. How many times have we failed to speak the Word of God, the witness of the Lord, or to do something right because the unpopularity that it would bring us with the multitudes? With the crowds. Remember Pilate? Pilate, Jesus was in front of Pilate. Pilate was impressed with Jesus, knew Jesus was innocent, tried to compromise, finagle his way out, but it says the voices of the people and the chief priests prevailed. And he handed Jesus over to be crucified. 
failing to stand up and do what's right because the voices of the multitudes. Well, as a Christian, there's only one voice you're to listen to. It's an unpopular voice. It's a voice that won't buy you favor with the world by and large. You will sometimes speak messages that they won't like to hear. But that's the voice of the shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And they will not follow another. I love that. If we can just tune ourselves into hearing his voice as Christians. I know what the multitude's saying, but God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? I want to live biblically, not emotionally, not being swayed by them. And it takes the filling of the Holy Spirit. It was Charles Spurgeon who boldly stood up in his pulpit and he said, I preach what I want, when I want, and how I want, without the fear of man. May we be the same, speaking the truth in love, but speaking the truth regardless of the crowds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts, it penetrates. It's very unpopular at times. At times we uh, perhaps question the results of it. Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit to boldly proclaim truth. And I pray that we'd never compromise truth at the altar of false unity. Help us to be on guard with who we align ourselves with, not to point the finger or be prideful, but to embrace those who embrace you. And Father, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the living Jesus Christ that lives within us. It gives us the power to overcome the wicked one. And he doesn't touch us. In Jesus' name.